Nicholas Borners of Capital Inc. and delighted to welcome you uh, at another extremely interesting topic and, and panel of our forum. Shipping and the environment, pathways to uh, a low carbon future. I think this is one of the most critical topics on everybody's agenda when it comes to shipping. We have a great uh, group of panelists. I will turn it over to Dr. Arlie Sterling, uh, the co-founder and president of Marsoft, who is going to introduce uh, our panelists. I'd like to extend a huge thanks to Arlie and of course to Knut, to Graham, Modi and Lucas, and thank you for being with us. And Arlie, the floor is yours. Nicholas, many thanks for organizing up this, uh, this program. In, indeed, the pathway to the zero carbon future is a critical uh, topic for the industry. I'm delighted to be moderating this panel uh, of distinguished business and intellectual leaders, people who are making decisions now who are going to lead the industry into its decarbonized future. I've asked everyone to take a look at a few questions to start the discussion going, but I expect this will be an opportunity to have a great discussion across the panel about the different decisions that are being made and how the timing looks for the, the, the industry. With that, let me introduce Mr. Knut Norbeck Nielsen, CEO, DNV Maritime, Graham Talbot, CFO, Atlas Corporation. Graham, some of us know you as C-SPAN, so forgive us for, for that uh, uh, reference. Modi Manu. Founder and CEO, MC Group, and Dr. Lucas Bomperis, President, Safe Bulkers. Gentlemen, many thanks for joining me today in this important discussion. Let me kick off by asking about timelines. 2050 seems a long way away, but many believe that it is imperative to achieve net zero CO2 emissions by 2050 or before. Nevertheless, the IMO estimates that shipping, shipping emissions continue to rise. What do you see as the feasible timeline for decarbonizing the shipping industry? And what have your customers and other stakeholders told you about their timeline? Graham, could you lead off the discussion on this point? Sure, Ali. Uh, thank you for the invitation to join everyone today and uh, the opportunity to, to participate in such a, an exciting topic. So the IMI target is to achieve a 70% reduction in uh, carbon intensity and 50% absolute reduction in greenhouse gases um, by 2050 with 2008 as the base year. So some of our customers have indicated um, that they will be net zero by 2050, so much more aggressive than the IMO targets. Um, we see a you know, a majority of the shippers following the IMO ambitions, but it, you know, it's got a lot of variable factors, you know, depending on the clarity of the, the regulatory landscape, um, building in the increased cost of carbon, uh, the available technology, uh, and the availability of uh, low cost and zero carbon fuels and their required supply chains. Um, at this stage, given all of these uncertainties, it's pretty hard to pin down a timeline uh, on decarbonisation. Uh, however, it's extremely encouraging to see the rate and the level of discussion and collaboration that's going on in the industry around it. Um, I think a number of us are probably involved with various groups, including the Mercer McKinney Muller Zero Carbon Shipping Partnership. There's a number of other industry panels as well, um, working on carbon neutral solutions and alternative fuels. So I think the important thing at this stage from my perspective is that everyone's very engaged in the subject. And we're, even if you look over the last six to eight, 12 months, 
the dialogue has sort of picked up a lot of momentum and the multiple pathways have also started to crystallize a lot more than they were quite a short time ago. Gentlemen, Graham talks about collaboration and, and the necessity of kind of putting together the entire supply chain of zero carbon fuels. What do you see as the timeline and, and for putting that immense uh, change into, into place? Modi, I'll turn it over to you to start out. Yeah, I, I agree with Graham that it's difficult to uh, pinpoint a date or a deadline. I think our responsibility as an industry is to try to be, uh, always be a bit ahead of the curve. So there's compliance uh, with regulation and that probably sets the minimum standard from our perspective. That's what it should be. Like uh, when class says you're either compliant with the cash class requirements, but you should always hope to be above that as well. Um, so it's not only complying with regulations, which is relatively, I think, uh, easy today for, for certain vessels or for most vessels, but it's going a little bit beyond that. But I think we also have responsibility as an industry not to, um, you know, not to disrupt, not to overshoot. Uh, you know, the supply chains, there are, you know, energy considerations, the power considerations, and I think we also, the consequence of, of sometimes, you know, pushing a little bit ahead of ourselves and that could backfire at times. So I wouldn't necessarily try to set, you know, hard deadlines beyond the regulation. We do need to comply and we do need to strive well beyond, you know, the compliance levels. But I don't think we should now, you know, if theoretically one would say, let's stop all conventional new building orders, let's just order, you know, alternative fuel vessels and make sure these are only E or green alternative fuels. Of course, the industry would collapse not the next morning, but a year or two later. So it's responsibility, I think, goes both ways. Um, you know, go ahead of the curve, go beyond, but uh, go responsibly. So Modi, I think if, if people stopped ordering, I think it's the shipyards that would uh, feel that pain most. And most ship owners would probably uh, feel that they were in a better position as a result. I'm surprised to hear you say that uh, the they, they stop stop ordering. I said stop ordering conventional and start ordering all alternatives. Okay. I mean, which which that's what should happen, but um, but you know, there's alternative, there's alternative, you know, and that's kind of the, the discussion is probably going to develop in that direction too. Uh, is it 100% green on day one? Yep. Is it a gradual transition from gray to blue to green? And is that going to take five or ten years, or you know, or, or 30, 40 years? So. Um, so there's no black and white here, I think. Um, but I just think that setting a deadline, which may not be realistic, is as risky as not having deadlines, of course, because it could backfire. Absolutely. Knut, uh, any thoughts from your side? Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, um, both Modi and, and Graham really pointed out some, some really valuable uh, insights. Um, maybe I can just uh, throw in a slightly different perspective to, to your uh, question, Ali, and that is, um, I'm not so concerned about, you know, setting declarations for when shipping should be zero uh, em emitting. I think it's much more important that we are actually taking some first steps uh, and get the momentum going. And I think uh, on this panel, there are some great examples of that, you know, taking the first steps 
Uh, and then, as Modi said, it, it's really about uh, transition. It will take time and we cannot move from where we are today to sort of the ideal um, shipping industry uh, over a short time span. This is going to take decades. And, uh, and I'm also pretty confident that uh, when we will you know, have the IMO discussions later on. Also, the timeline that has been set and agreed so far most likely are under a lot of pressure to be put forward. But, you know, putting it forward isn't really the important thing. The important thing is to actually do something and do it now because we don't really have any time to waste. And that would be sort of my, my two pence on this uh, uh, question, Al. Lucas. Yes, I, I, I definitely agree with all the people who spoke before. The question is uh, the actual regulatory solution is a gradual adaptation, which we all uh, have to comply until 2050 onwards. And uh, because otherwise uh, you cannot do much more because there are no fuels right now available. So there are uh, proposals, uh, we have methanol, we have uh, hydrogen, ammonia, but uh, we don't have any actual size. The vessels must be produced by shipyards. Networks must be uh, made of the fuel that will be chosen or the fuels that will be chosen. Uh, I, I, and I don't feel that uh, it's an easy task I, because uh, simply we don't have the technology right now to go to zero uh, emissions uh, vessel. Maybe we'll have it later, but we don't have it now. And when we speak about net zero emissions, maybe someone could think that a company, a shipping company, let's say, could invest in shipping and have some emissions and, and could invest in another activity and have, let's say, negative uh, emissions. Uh, and uh, that could make a net zero effect, but uh, we cannot have a zero emissions by 2050 from ships as we go right now. We need to have more research. We need to decide about fuel in the next, uh, in the next period as soon as possible. Uh, we don't have the fuel. And uh, we, I mean, we're considering, for example, LNG, which, which is, uh, it seems to be more problematic than it used to be uh, a month ago, uh, because we also have restrictions on LNG use. Uh, and uh, LNG could be a solution, but uh, because, uh, for example, if you have a vessel with which uh, uh, emits 30% lower emissions and you also uh, introduce LNG on this vessel and you go to 50. But how, how can you go to 100% uh, reduction or to have a, a neutral ship? I, I think it's uh, quite difficult and uh, we need to hire uh, and the industry and the research uh, needs to go faster. No question that the new options need to be developed and research needs to go faster. And, and we heard from Graham talking earlier about the need to collaborate in ways the industry hasn't. But Lucas, let me let me ask you about your, your customers, your charters. When they talk to you about decarbonization and pathways collaboration to decarbonization, do they talk about a timeline? Do they say, what kind of urgency do you hear from them? Look, I think that, uh, I mean, uh, the, the things that we have done uh, uh, are, uh, uh, we, we are testing quite often um, some biofuels, so uh, which uh, represents a reduction on carbon, on, on CO2 emissions. 
and sometimes quite substantial. If you move, let's say, from 20% to 30%, this could be a, a substantial reduction. Uh, we also uh, compete on the basis of, uh, a, let's say, phase three vessels, which will come, I mean, the, the first phase three vessels coming uh, next month, in I think in May. Um, and uh, we have uh, eight of those. So we have a, a very good level of competition against the market because all the other market, uh, I mean, they're not tasty vessels, which are, let's say, by 30% uh, in specific uh, uh, characteristics, they are by 30% lower uh, emitting as, uh, for, for CO2. Uh, so I think that the customers target to see a gradual reduction. Also ourselves as management, we try to reduce our footprint in a, in a manageable way. So we introduce uh, um, energy, energy efficient devices in more heavy vessels. Uh, sometimes we have sold all the vessels uh, and less efficient and we, we are ordering uh, new ships with 30% uh, uh, higher efficiency. Uh, all this that we are doing is uh, trying to to target this uh, 2030 uh, limits, the 2040 limits, the 2050 limits gradually. And uh, we are doing that simply because there is no other solution right now. I mean, we cannot go and order a ship with, uh, that burns, for example, uh, ammonia, or even if we order it, we cannot, <laughs> where can we find ammonia? Or uh, even biofuel you cannot find in, a, in many places. You can find in Rotterdam, maybe sometimes in Singapore, but it's not widespread. So I think there are substantial problems on all these issues, how to deal with. Look, that's a great transition to the next question. Um, uh, and we talked about first movers, we talk about industry pressure. Maersk's recent decision to order methanol capable vessels and to invest in e-methanol production facilities is a compelling indication that e-methanol will be the zero emissions fuel of the future. Do you agree? Modi, you're, you're close to this one. Yeah, so we definitely agree that methanol could be one of the most relevant fuels of the future. Uh, I would not necessarily say the winner takes it all. I think we're gonna have more than one relevant and important and significant fuel uh, you know, for the future. And I think the key here is the word that we've mentioned a number of times already is the transition. So there's methanol and you mentioned e-methanol and, and Merck's first move. Well, Merck's move was, was first was pioneering in the sense that they said we're going to use only e-methanol and we're building e-methanol vessels. But um, actually our fleet with the first ships, dual fuel uh, methanol vessels were delivered already in 2016. So that means that they were designed and you know ordered in between 2012 and 2014. And that's already almost 10 years back. So um, thinking a little bit uh, during 2020, when we all had time, uh, when we were locked up at home, and during the good old COVID days, uh, we think what, what is our path to, uh, to a cleaner future, to a transition, uh, you know, decarbonization and transition in shipping. And we thought, what, what does the fuel actually need to have? So of course it needs to be compliant with regulation and methanol is compliant today. And the, the great thing about it and the thing we really liked about it is that you could see how it could continue being compliant well into well 20, 30, 40 years down the line. While the methanol we use today is uh, perhaps called gray methanol on a well-to-weight basis, it does, you know, uh, there's carbon in the, in the process and it emits carbon, of course. 
and but it can gradually transition towards blue methanol and thereafter green methanol and 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 we know there's the um the feasibility the technological solutions to produce sufficient e-methanol or green methanol but that's just going to take time and the nice thing about methanol is that methanol is methanol whatever the you know the ingredients are it's it's the same commodity it's the same product which you which goes through your system through your engine and uh, and, and you don't need to make any modifications as it becomes greener so you know we could tick that box with with methanol for sure we thought that you know uh, you know marine fuel should be safe we're never 100% safe. We're always dealing with combustion and um, with, with elements of risk here. But we, we found that methanol is a safe solution and the good procedures and, and, and good uh, mitigations to, to, you know, to any of its adversaries. Um, we thought about easy handling. We thought that the, 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 the right direction should be a fuel which is liquid at ambient temperature, which we can handle as the bunkers we handle today. It doesn't need to get over complicated. I think shipping is becoming quite complicated as it is. The technology on board, the requirements from the crew, the, the safety issues, etc. So with, with methanol, it's something which is much more familiar to us. It's a liquid than some other fuels that you compare, for example, with LNG and definitely with, with ammonia. Uh, we can rely on existing technologies, on proven technologies. Um, when we uh, finally found the solution, uh, basically to our ambition, which was setting up clean sea transport and acquiring the MarineVest uh, dual fuel methanol fleet, uh, we knew we could rely on 40,000 uh, engine running hours already in that fleet. And up to date, there's about 100,000 of engine running hours, uh, you know, on the global fleet uh, running on methanol. So the technology is existing, it, it's proven, it, it works. We took delivery recently of the third generation of uh, dual fuel methanol tanker. It means that we've already seen improvements, enhancements, and a lot of lessons which have been learned. The, the fourth uh, important element, of course, is availability of fuel. Again, as Lucas mentioned, you know, if we, if we look at ammonia today, uh, is it there? Is it available? How are we going to handle it? Uh, what are the volumes we're going to see? How are those volumes in comparison to global? Ammonia trade today, just using you know ammonia as an example, but with with methanol, it's 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 available as a liquid. It's the same liquid that we can use as a bunker fuel. It's available in over hundred, about one hundred seventeen ports today. Not always as marine fuel, but the adjustment is just a matter of uh, getting that critical mass in terms of number of ships out there. And then we're going to see also the marine fuel, the methanol bunker tankers and methanol uh, marine fuel supply networks, and we're working hard in that direction. And of course, there's the cost effectiveness. Now, none of those fuels is gonna be cost effective when compared with fuel oil, HFO or uh, low sulfur fuel oil today. But compared with each other, we, we measured over time, you know, with historical rates and looked a little bit about the forward curves and we found that methanol could be um, you know, cost effective when compared with the alternatives, LNG and ammonia. Now, each one of those products has different uh, supply demand dynamics, different pricing dynamics. At, at times, we're going to see LNG being cheaper, as we've seen it, you know, for many years. Now it's extremely expensive. At times, we're going to see methanol being a cheaper solution, and I don't think we have any visibility about uh, ammonia, for example. Um, now, the important thing, the one cost we can control because it's going to be difficult to control the forward rates, um, is the is the capex. And, and the other thing we liked about this is the capex uh, for dual fuel methanol solution is relatively low. 
when compared to cooling plants to the LNG solutions. And also, you know, to the same extent, you know, OPEX is quite attractive. So to, to answer your question, yes, I think methanol can be one of the winners. And it has a great uh, you know, future ahead of it. We believe in it. We've invested in it you know, heavily, and we will continue doing so. But I wouldn't say e-methanol you know, is the one and only solution today. We're going to get there. We need to be blue before we get green. And we need to be, you know, basically, we need to be able to uh, walk before we run. Graham, I'm sure, uh, uh, certainly, Maersk is one of your uh, leading customers. and and. I'm sure you have lots of conversations with them about the kinds of ships they want and, and what they're what kind of pressure they're seeing from their clients in this regard. Do they talk to you about methanol? Yeah, certainly. Um, uh, as an ex-MERSC employee, I also have to sort of compliment them on their courage um, in taking the position they're taking. That being said, you know, we're we're currently building 70 new container ships and 25 of those are dual fuel LNG. A number of the conventional ones are ammonia ready with tank and piping. Um, we're also working on methanol with Maersk and some other customers as well. So um, I think as most of my colleagues have said that one, there's going to be a transition. You know, this is going to take quite a bit of time. And I think during that transition, there's not going to be one fuel. You know, I think it'll be dependent on trading location, type and size of vessel, etc. And we will probably be running with a few different options for some time. And then ultimately, maybe we will, maybe we will consolidate back into one area. Every one of the options has pros and cons. You know, so methanol clearly is um, a strong runner, but um, so is green ammonia with its energy density and its lower temperature for storage. So therefore, lower uh, energy overall. But, you know, there's other negative attributes to ammonia as well in terms of corrosion and shipping, et cetera. You know, so we've got a lot of smart people in the industry in the world that will sort these problems out for us. Um, so back to Knut's problem or comment, you know, the most important thing now is that we're all working on it together with the engine manufacturers and the customers. And for me, the customers are the liners um, in terms of working out these pathways and then it starts to get more complicated and interesting, I guess, when you start to work from LNG through to ELNG and clean LNG solutions with synthetic gases as well. So there's multiple pathways. And from my perspective, it's too early to call a winner. Thanks, Graham. Knut, uh, uh, I've always thought of DNV uh, uh, as, as looking at the ships. Now you've had to focus on the entire supply chain. Are you seeing methanol ahead of the, the pack in that regard? Or where, where do you see that Maersk decision? Well, I think the, the, the Maersk decision and initiative should uh, really be complemented for the fact that they're looking upstream, how, how to incentivize the uh, production and the infrastructure and, and the port facilities to provide methanol and, and preferably blue or, or green methanol uh, and of course one of the big players like Maersk or any of the other big liners can have a significant influence in this respect but I, I think it's um, you know a, a lot has been said already but coming back to what Lucas said I think uh, when you look at the shipboard technology maybe we're in the sort of range 
four to eight years before we have sorted out the issues around both, uh, say, methanol and ammonia, and, and maybe more so on the ammonia side than the methanol side. Um, but the real challenge is, is to provide sufficient quantities of either the blue uh, fuels or the green fuels. And uh, not only the production, I mean, this is basically either coming from renewable sources, and, and we all know it takes a long time to develop these uh, facilities. Uh, and then uh, on, on the blue uh, fuel types, you have the carbon capture and storage. Uh, technologies that also needs to be developed and 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 that's why I, I you know I'm very hesitant to point to a winner in this respect I, I think like has been pointed out we will have a multitude of different fuels going forward but the real issue uh, for the world and not only for shipping but for the economy is to produce sufficient green or blue fuels for the maritime transition to sort of move towards net zero and that is quite a significant task and it's not something that shipping can resolve on its own here we basically need to have some public and private partnerships more r d and um, i think this is you know it's a very challenging um, setting but it's certainly a very inspiring setting to attract talent and new talent into the industry and i think you know expanding on our networks and the ecosystem will be incredibly important and that's why also uh, with dnb we have the expansion into the renewables the oil and gas uh, carbon capture and storage technology so i think that could be quite a useful uh, knowledge base for the industry to tap into sorry for a long answer but that's, there you have it Gosh, I, I can't tell you uh, how much I agree Knut, with your point about uh, broadening the discussion and bringing new people into the industry and, and, and helping us find solutions. It's been extraordinary to speak to a range of people who have, are committed to decarbonization, who have great ideas and have a very forceful approach uh, uh, to, to articulating those ideas. Uh, uh, as you know, here in the States, and I'm, I'm uh, conducting this, moder uh, moderating this panel from the States, but uh, one of the things we've learned is how important farmers are uh, when one chooses uh, alternative fuels. And so anything that uh, sounds like it might be grown on a farm uh, has a certain uh, momentum uh, built into it here uh, in, in the States. And, and apropos your point about uh, collaboration and this not really being a, an industry, uh, or the shipping is not going to lead the way on this. Uh, I think finding who is going to lead the way is going to be an important part. Lucas, so what, quick, any quick comments from you? I know you've been a, a pioneer in the biofuel side and, and you've seen uh, that transition at work. Yes, uh, I think uh, whatever was spoken uh, until now was uh, uh, very wise and I, and I agree with everybody. Uh, and the question here is, uh, we have some words that we are using. For example, we're using the word E for uh, environment, then um, methanol, ethanol, or fuel, or uh, hydrogen, or nitrogen, et cetera, so, or ammonia, whatever. So first of all, the question is whether it's E, uh, what we are consuming. Second is the fuel, what type of fuel, and uh, methanol, I mean, you can produce methanol or any other biofuel or biodiesel or several other fuels that can be, can be, can be compatible. Uh, the problem is that uh, we need 
if we want to achieve a quicker solution, we need not to broaden the discussion in many fuels, but to focus in one runner. Whatever is the runner, I don't believe that the biofuels or even methanol, I mean, the world has so much, so great capacity or the farmers to, uh, to produce such quantities of uh, biofuel that is needed uh, or bioethanol or biomethanol, whatever. The question is, uh, and also you don't, you have a ship that goes everywhere. You cannot have, let's say, I have a ship that uh, burns uh, methanol, I'll go to Singapore. The other ship that burns uh, biofuel, I'll go to Rotterdam. Uh, we, we, you cannot do that. You need a, a, a common fuel. And the success of, of HFO was that it was available, the same similar fuel, I mean, of the same quality in all parts of the world. So you need to decide one fuel, which uh, to be able to burn it safely in a, and carry it safely in a vessel and have the characteristic E in front of this fuel. So I don't feel that the, the, the right now we're going to, towards the right direction. We will move in here and there. Each one of us is doing something, but nothing really global. Lucas, that's a great observation. Uh, I, I think we talk about collaboration. It often seems to me to, to say, gosh, look at the smorgasbord of alternatives we all have. And it almost seems like it's uh, slowing things down. Uh, the industry could commit to a, a solution uh, and uh, perhaps accelerate the pace of decarbonization by making that commitment. But I, I, I think it's a very complex issue. Let me, let me just uh, introduce what I think is the great benefit of shipping and our great challenge right now. Uh, the IMO, um, let's face it, is as a much less urgent approach to decarbonization than many, many stakeholders in the industry. I personally, I can sympathize with the IMO perhaps, but I think it's a problem uh, for us. Uh, the, the stakeholders from the banking side, from the insurance side, in some cases from the chartering side, they seem to be ahead of the IMO. Um, who's gonna drive the pace of decarbonization in shipping? Is it the regulators? We all gonna have to do what they say? Or are the charters going to get ahead of the discussion, or someone else, or the bank's going to lead that financing discussion? Uh, Graham, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, sorry, I'll, I'll, Lucas, I'll let uh, give that one to you uh, to start off with. So yes, that's a very good observation. First of all, we need regulators because if we didn't have regulators, we would move at all to any direction, and no one would move to any direction, even charters or bankers or uh, ourselves. So in this framework, framework that has been created, sometimes, uh, uh, let's say some bodies have a quicker or faster response, uh, uh, like EU, for example. Uh, other bodies have a slower response, like uh, IMO. At the end of the day, there is a response. And what we care, all of us, what we want to see is that uh, in, the long, in, uh, let's say in the next uh, two, three decades, we will achieve a target where we will not emit more CO2 emissions in the atmosphere, and we go to a, a neutral, uh, uh, let's say overall life. Uh, the question now is, uh, uh, as I told you, we are in our company. We follow a very pragmatic approach. A pragmatic means is that what we, you can do now and what you cannot do is okay. Let, let's do it later. So the pragmatic approach says, if you have a vessel, for example, that is heavy, then uh, do some jobs to make it 
lighter. For example, put some energy efficient devices that will reduce the CO2 emissions. This is a good approach. And I think this is also a global approach by all the, uh, by, by, by the civil community. The second problem, the second issue is that, of course, okay, you, you may reduce the, the speed, but then you lose also competitiveness if you, if you reduce the SIPs. So if you have better SIPs, you can compete better. If you have, let's say, heavier SIPs, you don't compete. And it's also this that is driven by the charters, because the charters would like to have, I mean, the big charters, at least our biggest charters, all have sustainability policy, and they want all of us to see uh, this uh, performance. So one, uh, either through energy efficient mechanisms or through uh, using biofuel, you can always achieve a better uh, environmental uh, responsiveness and uh, be also at the same time com competitive. Uh, at the same time, we also have, uh, let's say, sustainability linked uh, loans which uh, penalizes when we don't have, uh, whether that's in certain targets and, and uh, gives us incentive when we do that. I think the industry itself tries to motivate uh, everybody towards the direction of faster uh, decarbonization, while IMO is going to a, pay, to a more safe pace, I would say, that uh, is more focused on the safety of supply rather than the quicker decarbonization. Uh, because imagine if you exceed certain limits, then uh, you risk uh, to have uh, to go to a solution which will be very expensive. Uh, so I, I think that uh, in this respect, uh, we need to be pragmatic. And again, I would like to repeat that it's most important issue is whether we can decide a fuel, because any fuel can be burnt. I mean, methanol, of course, you can have an engine that burns methanol, diesel, biodiesel, whatever. The question is, if you have it available, if you have it worldwide, if, it's, if, if it has standard quality, and if it's E. Otherwise... Lucas, I, I think your observations about what we can do right now and, and, how, and the, the, the little steps for little feet is, is sometimes how I think about it. Uh, that's a very powerful one. It's what one we have at Marsoft uh, pursued by trying to ease the path to getting carbon credits for the kinds of investments that you described in the uh, in the energy saving devices. And there, of course, we have a market for carbon and reduction in CO two emissions that will pay for it. Uh, let me shift the 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 chemical compound under discussion uh, for a moment. We've been talking about CO two. But a lot of people believe that the major, a major achievement at COP26 was restricting methane emissions and specifically targeting a 30% reduction in methane emissions relative to 2020 by 2030, an aggressive 10 year time span. Um, at the same time, the shipping industry is going to, in all likelihood, rapidly ramp up the use of LNG. And the use of LNG is associated with methane emissions. And I think there was a reference earlier about that we've recently learned that those methane emissions may be a more serious problem than uh, we initially anticipated. Can I, I'd like to turn this one over to you. Where do you see methane impacting the shipping industry? 
Well, first and, and foremost, I think it was a very important decision being made at COP26 to reduce the uh, methane emissions in the upstream chain. That's basically what we are talking about. So that will make gas much more relevant as, as a fuel when we consider well to wake. Uh, so I think the investments done in dual fuel gas engines, I mean, now there's a, a real uh, spike in the price, but given that development, that, that is beneficial for the emission profile of, uh, of gas. Um, and then if you sort of move to the onboard technology issue of methane slip, now that is really a, a Mickey Mouse uh, problem compared to the methane emissions that we talk about in the upstream uh, chain. Uh, and uh, we are working very closely with you know, the, the main uh, engine manufacturers and they are all working on technologies to take out that methane slip or at least reduce it significantly. So uh, for me, that's not really a, a good argument against using uh, gas as a fuel. Uh, that is a technology issue. I'm pretty confident that that will be greatly reduced. And anyway, using the modern technologies of today, it is greatly reduced to you know, the engines and the technologies used in the beginning on the, especially on the ferries. So mm. um, my take on this is it will make, uh, gas and LNG much more relevant and let's face it there is an abundance of gas available in the world and it could provide a significant transition into say an even better fuel future but you also have the uh, like Graham pointed to you can do the uh, the bio LNG, the ELNGs. So, I mean, uh, many talk about a bridge, but I really see that as a very long bridge. But the most important thing is it will be a significant part of the transition into a zero emission futures at some stage. So, you know, you really see the COP26 decision to limit methane emissions as encouraging the use of LNG in shipping. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Graham, I got to turn it over to you. You've, you're building 25 uh, LNG powered uh, ship or dual fuel, excuse me, uh, powered ships. Um, what, what, how has the methane emissions played a role in your decision to invest in that regard or C-SPAN uh, decisions? Yeah, of course, it's been a, a key decision, but um, as Knut said, you know, there's a lot of clever people working on this, whether it be through, once again, through industry collaboration with Lloyd's Register Methane Initiative as an example, uh, but also with the engine manufacturers. So uh, once again, you know, maybe I'm a little bit blind in my confidence, but I'm very confident of the smart people working on these issues. And I think now that we have people pointed in the right direction with the right sense of urgency, I think these things will be managed successfully in the short term. Uh, Modi, any comments from you as you take a look at methane? I, I don't know, are there issues associated with methanol and methane emissions? Uh, forgive me for my ignorance. No, no, not as such. I, I agree with my, my colleagues here that wherever there's a technology the technological solution to be had, it's going to be found. And the good people working on those things, smart, and we've overcome, you know, much more complicated uh, issues. 
And, you know, methanol has other uh, technological challenges. You know, we, we, we use, I think that's relevant also for LNG, but, you know, using the pilot fuels, for example, which means that even when you have a, you know, work on your uh, secondary fuel, which is methanol, you're going to be using the pilot fuel, which is diesel or HFO, you know, for the ignition, or HFO for the ignition. Even that is um, on track in terms of getting, uh, you know, technological solutions. And the use of the you know, pilot fuel is going to be reduced uh, initially, the amount, the percentage of it. Later on, perhaps we'll look at into uh, electrical uh, plug in ignition. And, and eventually that uh, issue is going to go away. And I think that's also the case for, for the methane slip. And so the technology is, is going to be there. You know, when there's, when there's a will, there's a way. It's, um, I think some other points uh, which were raised here about, you know, availability and time and transition, those are the more relevant uh, issues. I don't think anything technological is going to stand in any of our, in our way, basically. Got to turn this back to you, Knut. Uh, no, there's no, uh, no technological barriers to decarbonization uh, is what I think I just heard from Modi. Do you agree? <laughs> Nicely taken to the extreme, but yes. <laughs> yeah. I've got to do something as a moderator, Modi. Forgive me. That is actually also what we have concluded in our research, that uh, the, the real important step now is uh, policies and regulations. Uh, and technology will follow, I'm pretty confident. But it's a question of investments, naturally. Uh, however, uh, I, I agree with, uh, with Knut about the LNG, and uh, quite often I, I have said it several times, because if you want to be pragmatic, you need to have fuel, and right now we, don't, we have many fuels, but, but we don't have a fuel. LNG, for example, is worldwide. You can find LNG in, in, uh, in various places very easy. The problem of methane sleep is, uh, as we said, can be solved easily, or more difficult, but it can be solved. The, uh, what the LNC produces before the ship, I mean, from the, from the well, it's another issue, but uh, this issue is a global issue because everybody is using LNC in so many countries. For example, you know, Germany bring, uh, produces, uh, I don't know, 60, 70% of uh, uh, LNC in their, uh, in their balance. So, uh, I think if we want to be pragmatic, we need to produce a ship for the next, let's say, 20 years, which is uh, LNG. Second is a phase three or maybe phase four vessel with energy efficient devices and reach a 50, 60% uh, CO2 reduction. Now, from that point and only, we want to, to go to 100%, I mean, to, to neutral ship, then we need to produce another fuel, which is something of something completely different, maybe ammonia, hydrogen, methanol, biofuels, etc. I don't believe the believe biofuels are the end at the solution of the problem because they have restrictions which are related to the land that is used. Uh, so we need to go to somewhere to something which is, um, let's say, either a hydrogen or ammonia. Let's say the hydrogen needs a lot of pressure or ammonia that is corrosive. Or I don't know, maybe something, something which is uh, uh, could be very, very uh, doubtful. Many people will doubt about it. Maybe small nuclear reactors that will not produce any CO2 emissions whatsoever, uh, suitable for uh, vessel application. So I think there are all these solutions, but we need the world must take a decision which way to go and not to leave 
to the users because we as ship companies are the users and when you go to buy a car you don't ask okay you, you have let's say two solutions you have either diesel or you have a gasoline you don't ask uh, okay what do you want to develop for your car i mean they, 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 they Lucas, excuse me, I have to, to interject and I see Nicholas is here. I'm actually trying to buy a car and I can tell you that's the last thing you do in the now, but uh, it's too darn expensive to even think about it. Yes. Many thanks, gentlemen, for this, uh, for the panel and, and, and for the opportunity to discuss the most important issue uh, facing our, our industry over the next 20 years. So, Nicholas, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you to all of you. Great panel. Thanks, Ali. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank, thank you, Ali. And gentlemen, thank, thank you very much. Thank you, Lucas. Thank you. Thank you all. Right.